On their 19th wedding anniversary, Rocio and Francisco wake up like always, before dawn, without an alarm, 2,000 miles away from each other. Rocio's bed is in a squat house in central West Mexico. Francisco's bed is in a small apartment he shares with five other men in Rolling Meadows. This is how they've woken up for most of their 19 years married, in separate beds, in separate countries. For Francisco and Rocio on this anniversary, it doesn't make sense to think of what they won't do. What they can't do. They won't kiss. They won't make love. But it hasn't always been this way. Rocio and Francisco met in Quiringuicharo, Mexico. The houses here snake in from the highway, loop around the town square, and then climb up toward the hills that surround the town. When Francisco was growing up here, the streets were dirt. His parents kept animals up a hill from the house, turkeys, pigs, cows. You never know when you're going to meet the love of your life. For Francisco, it was on his way to feed the pigs. He was just 12 or 13. He was walking up the path when he noticed a new girl outside one of the houses. Eyes the color of honey, wavy hair. There were other pretty girls. I had some friends, but she was always the most important, the one you felt more for, to have a life with. She was friendly. She laughed a lot. But it wasn't easy for them to see each other. Rocio's parents were strict. They wouldn't let us talk. We had to hide just so we could talk. We would agree on a plan for the next day. If her dad was going to be there, she would go somewhere else, offer to go to the store for any little thing. We were always looking for ways to talk. We would write letters, but he would address them to one of my friends, so my parents wouldn't know that they were from him. Then my friend would give me the letters. Rosie, you got a letter, and I'd go running over there. I fought to get her for seven years until I finally asked for her hand. Look at that. The lengths people will go to to be together. The videotape of Rocio and Francisco's wedding is choppy. The sound isn't great. But Rocio likes to watch it from time to time. In it, she sees herself and Francisco smiling. They're dancing a waltz below a tree in the plaza the long white train of Rocio's dress moving over the dusty earth. Finally, they are together. They would live this way for just a few months. Shortly after the wedding, Rocio was expecting. Like any young couple, they were nervous, Francisco worried about the best way to care for his pregnant wife. During that time, a woman needs your support, the support of her husband. But you stop and think, you also need enough money so nothing happens. You think something could happen to her or to the baby. In Mexico, you pay cash on the spot for medical treatment. No money, no treatment. Francisco and Rocio weren't starving. They were better off than others in town. But his whole life, Francisco had been taught that a father must provide for his family. So he did what people in his town consider the responsible thing. Before the baby was born, he left. 
Behind a strip mall in Rolling Meadows, there's a sprawling apartment complex. Francisco lives here, along with lots of immigrants, many from his hometown. Over the years, he's learned enough English to get by. Okay, my, my name is Francisco. I come to Piringuicharo, Michoacán. Francisco's apartment is on the second floor. It's only two bedrooms, but six men share the place. In the living room, there are only two old office chairs and a folding chair. It's shocking that so many people can have so little stuff. But almost all of the men living here have their belongings in Kiringuicharo, along with their families. Francisco doesn't spend much time here anyway. Mostly, he works. He starts his first job at 6.30 in the morning in the cafeteria of a corporate office building, making breakfast and lunch for the people who work here. He puts in nine hours at this job. We had a busy day. A lot of engineers came from other buildings, and they asked for more breakfast orders. And then I had to clean up everything I served in the morning. Then he travels to his second job at a suburban gym, where he works five hours more. When he can, he picks up painting and remodeling jobs on the weekends. Once a week or so, he wires money home. When he opens his wallet, photos of his family look out at him. He sends them $200 a week, more when it's needed. You have to have the courage to at least try to improve your situation. It's not to get rich. It's so they can stay in school and things like that. Every couple years, Francisco goes back to Mexico to see his family and then pays a smuggler to get him back into the U.S. He's crossed so many times he's lost count. I think I've come here about 15 or 16 times. I think. It's somewhere around there. No, no, 14, 13. But if you count the visits carefully add them up, it's probably been more like eight or nine times. Maybe Francisco overestimates because he can't admit to himself that he hasn't been home more. Or maybe it seems like more because some crossings are so difficult, so intense, that Francisco remembers them as two or three. This time we really had to walk. We walked for three nights and spent two days in the hills. We ran out of water. We spent a whole day without drinking water. And the heat was really bad. Francisco knows that family separations can affect anyone. Even legal immigrants and U.S. citizens can wait years for their spouses and children to be allowed into the U.S. But at the bottom of the pile are people like him, those without papers. Going home to see his family and then returning with a smuggler through the desert will cost him at least $3,000. It could cost him his life. Still, it's a risk he takes. The truth is you can't stand it anymore. You can't stand staying here for four years if you love your family. You depend on your family. And even though you're here, you're always thinking of them. You have to go just to see them. Two thousand miles southwest in Kiringuicharo, Rocio lives in her mother-in-law's house on the town square. All day, she shouts hellos and goodbyes to people passing by. Her days start early, 
often before dawn. She climbs the narrow cement stairs to the roof. There, she and an uncle use a hand-cranked press to make tortillas, hundreds of them. Later, they'll be fried into crisp tostadas and sold from the kitchen window. At night, she sells tacos from a cart that dominates the front of the house. She wears a Chicago ribs apron, often over a red t-shirt from an auto wreckers in Bensonville. Her kids do their homework nearby, at the end of a long table the customers eat at. Rocio rarely rests. To earn a little extra, she makes announcements over a sound system that blares from her mother-in-law's roof. She charges 10 pesos to advertise that someone has killed a pig and is selling cuts. Or she announces for free that the first graders need to bring their vaccination cards to school. It's better to work, no? That way I'm not thinking about things. What good is it to say, God only knows what's going on up there. This way, look, I'm standing there selling tacos and I don't even think about it until the night. When I lay down, I, that's when I remember. In Spanish, there are lots of sayings about love and distance. A donde el corazón se inclina, el pie camina. Where the heart leads, the feet follow. But there's also this. Ojos que no ven, corazón que no siente. Literally, eyes that don't see, heart that doesn't feel. It's a little bit like out of sight, out of mind. Rocio knows men from Kiringuichero who've abandoned their wives and children and formed new families in Chicago. In this small town, everyone knows. What do you think of that, huh? No, that's bad. Can you imagine it? They're over there all the time and you're waiting for them here. And at the end, they tell you that that's it? No, it's tough, believe me. People are gambling. There are a lot of temptations. You know there are temptations. And sometimes they fall, and sometimes they don't. That's how it is. Yeah, there's no sense in saying it doesn't happen. The fear of infidelity in towns like Kiringuichero can be overwhelming. Sometimes the fear is justified. Rocio knows of a woman named Maribel. Everyone knows of her. Her husband went to Chicago to earn money to finish their house. One day he called to say he'd found someone else. Maribel felt she'd go crazy. She left her two kids with their grandmother and fled to the border. Wailing, she begged a border patrol agent to let her through, to let her find her husband. He wouldn't. Back in Kiringuichero, Maribel began to unravel. I couldn't get up. I felt such a sadness. I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't take a shower, fix myself up. I just wanted to cry 24 hours a day. I had longer hair then, and I wanted to cut it all off myself. Looking at myself in the mirror, crying, it's very difficult. It's a heavy depression, one that kills you. For women in Kiringuichero, with their men in Chicago, Maribel and others in her situation are living, walking reminders of what can happen. There's a name for women who stay behind when their husbands go north, women like Rocio. They're called white widows. Se la voy a checar del otro lado. 
At the small public health clinic down the block from Osillo's house, women sit in the cramped waiting room. We see a lot of women with depression, ranging from mild to severe. Celeste Cedeño is the doctor here. Muchas crisis nerviosas. A lot of nervous breakdowns. Some are hypochondriacs. They fake being sick because sometimes that's a way to get their husbands to come back home. It's a way to get attention. Sometimes they need affection and that's the way they show it. The drug Cedeño gives to wives of migrants is diazepam, better known in the U.S. as Valium. Cedeño also sees women for sexually transmitted diseases when their husbands return. When Gustavo López Castro, a researcher at a nearby university, looked into the mental health of women left behind, he found some startling things. Wives of migrants living in idyllic little towns like Quiringuicharo had rates of anxiety and depression greater than women in fast-paced Mexico City. He named the women's condition the Penelope Syndrome. In Homer's Odyssey, Penelope waited 20 years for Ulysses to return from the Trojan War. She spent her days and nights weaving and unweaving her shroud and crying. But Rocio isn't the type of person to spend much time brooding. What good does it do for me to cry? Hmm? You're in the same place afterwards as before. I cry, then I wipe my tears away, and I keep going. But things get to her sometimes. Like when Francisco's brothers and sisters, who live in the U.S. legally, come to visit. They thank her for taking care of their mother, then they go back to their families in the U.S. Rocio can't get a tourist visa to visit the United States because the government screens out people it thinks will stay. Sometimes Rocio worries. There have to be women there. It's not like there's not going to be women there. It's not like you can say, no, no, don't look at any women. Only look at the men. Francisco says there have been misunderstandings over the years. He says the key to keeping their relationship healthy is communication. But rumors cross the border freely. So do videos and photos. Some might feature your husband dancing with someone else. Since we're up here by ourselves, they think that... But I wish she could come and see how we live here. And I wish she could see how we work, so she wouldn't feel insecure or believe what people say. When young people get married at Kiringuichero's church, Our Lady of Guadalupe, the priest gives them some advice. In prenuptial talks, I always emphasize, I really, really emphasize, look, you are going to marry him? Follow him. Don't leave him alone. That's the advice I give them. Go with him. He's your husband. Researchers say that the conditions in which people are migrating worldwide have become harsher, even in the last decade. Borders are harder to cross, return visits home more difficult, and migrants are exposed to longer periods without their families. The stress can be more than humans are able to adapt to. Francisco's felt it. You're stressed, your nerves are on end. It affects you that you're so far away. But you have to know how to control it. Some men can't. The term Penelope syndrome was inspired by a condition that psychologists and researchers in Spain have identified as the Ulysses syndrome in immigrants there, mainly men. 
It's characterized by depression and mental disorders. The principal stressor, loneliness and separation from loved ones. Francisco didn't make it home to meet his first child, Yvonne, until she was a year and a half. He would go on to miss nearly every one of her birthdays. It's not bitterness. It's not anger. Maybe it's resentment. Yvonne is 18 now. He went out of necessity, but you still feel sad. You see other kids who live with their dads, not most kids, but you feel bad seeing your girlfriends with their dads, and you're there with just your mom. In Mexico, a girl's 15th birthday is almost as big as her wedding. Francisco didn't go back for Yvonne's. Instead, he bought her a ring at a jewelry store in Carpentersville and sent it home with a friend. It's one of Yvonne's fondest memories of her father, and he wasn't even there. The children of men who've gone up north have complicated relationships with their dads. They long for them, but when their dads come home, it's not always easy. The young ones are suddenly banned from their mother's bed. The older ones collide with new rules and expectations. This is Francisco's only son, Paco. He's 16 now. His voice cracks. He'll have to figure out how to shave soon. One time, when he'd been here for about a week, he went to town to get some things we needed. I told him to bring me some toys, and he didn't bring me anything. Then he asked me to carry something into the house that he had bought, and I didn't understand him. He had a belt, and he hit me. <laughs> It was bad because I never dealt with him, only on my mom and my grandma. I didn't speak to him. I was mad. In Kidding We Chat Out, the principal of the school estimates that half of his 350 students have fathers or mothers or both in the U.S. From an early age, children understand why their parents aren't with them. But you get Because he wants to work so he could send us money. This is Lupita, Francisco's youngest. She's 10. When he came one time, he had a big pillow fight. I always remember him. I feel bad because he's not here. But kids' emotions can run the gamut. Lupita's sister, Alejandra, is 11. She prefers not to talk about her dad. I don't know much about him, she says. Alejandra can only remember two visits from her dad in her entire life, once when she was eight, and once last year when she was 10. Sometimes you miss the best parts. You still hug them and everything, but not like when they were small, when they were crawling and running around. Now they're big, and I tell my wife, you're the lucky one, because you've gotten to enjoy them. And me, I love them and they love me, but I wish I could have enjoyed them while they were little. Kids' relationships with their absent parents are built on a few memories and lots of telephone calls. A day before Paco's 16th birthday, Francisco calls from Rolling Meadows to see what his son needs or wants for his birthday. I don't know, Dad. I don't know. Whatever's fine. When are you going to send Mom money so we can go to town? I kind of feel like buying something, but I don't know. One thing I haven't done is put minutes on my cell phone. Mom says she can't right now. Eventually, Paco tells his dad he wants a pair of pants, the baggy kind that kids from the U.S. wear. 
It's a simple request, but one of many that will keep Francisco working in Rolling Meadows. During Francisco's last visit to the United States, he earned enough money to finally finish the house in Kiringuicharo. It's a modest home, one story, three bedrooms. It sits on a little hill about a 10-minute walk from the plaza. Inside, everything is new. There are matching headboards and dressers in every room. This is the living room. Look at the bathroom. This is my bathroom. Look. As much as she loves the house, Rocio hasn't moved in. She still lives at her mother-in-law's, where Rocio and her four kids sleep in a single bedroom. Partly it's because she's caring for her mother-in-law, who's sick. But mostly it's because she can't stand to move in. This house reminds her of him. Why do you think I don't move in? The kids go out and I'm there all alone. I lay down and I say, oh God, all the time like this? No. That's why sometimes I get fed up. Sometimes I get mad at him and I tell him, I'm going to go to Chicago. No, but I'm just saying that. I can't make myself go. You think I can leave my kids behind? I can't do it. I'm just saying it to badger him. Francisco and Rocio had agreed. He'd come back to Kiringuichara when the house was finished. But the family is no closer to being together. In the last few months, Francisco's mom has been in and out of the hospital. He's been sending money home for her treatment, thousands of dollars in the last six months. His son Paco's in high school, and it costs money to keep him there. And they want one more thing before Francisco comes home. A van. El carro, el carro. That's what he went for this time, to bring back a van. We've got the white car, but we don't all fit in there. So what he wants to do is to bring a van down, so the whole family can fit. You know, you can fit a lot of people in the van. Francisco wants to move back as soon as he can get a few thousand dollars together, a safety net for life in Mexico. But sometimes he thinks he'll end up in Chicago until he can't work anymore. On his 19th wedding anniversary, like every other day, Francisco has a couple hours off between jobs. This is the time he usually calls Mexico. Rocio has downtime, too. She's sitting at her mother-in-law's kitchen table. I'm waiting to see if the phone rings. And nothing. She wonders if Francisco will remember their anniversary. Francisco gets home, watches some TV, takes a shower. He warms tortillas on the stove, takes some beef and red chili sauce out of the fridge and slides it into the microwave. As he's eating, he glances up at a TV news report on immigration raids at McDonald's. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't call Rocio. I'm still hoping the phone will ring. But no, I think I'm going to have to call him. I keep thinking... Let's see if he remembers, because he told me, I'll talk to you again. But, no. Living with your partner, there are lots of ways to signal anger or disappointment. You can narrow your eyes, stop talking, stomp around. You can drop hints. It's a lot harder from 2,000 miles. Maybe Francisco didn't call because he was being recorded all day for this documentary. Maybe he just forgot. At 10.30 p.m., Rocio and the rest of the family pull the taco griddles into the house. 
At 11, Francisco drives home from work. Somewhere around midnight, they get into their separate beds, the first night of their 20th year together. When you ask people from Kiringuichado about their decision to live the way they do, many say this. Así es, ni modo. That's how it is. What are we going to do? It's a statement that sums up all the things that are beyond their control. The $15 a day wages in Kiringuichado, the price of pants and medicine and a house, the pull of the north on the men, on the families. Over the years, maybe Francisco and Rocio have told themselves that it's worth it, that they're living apart so their children can get a better footing in the world, so their children won't have to live this way when they fall in love. A year ago, Francisco returned to Mexico for the wedding of his firstborn daughter, Yvonne. The last time he'd seen Yvonne, she was 14. Now, she was getting married. Francisco stayed in Kiringuichado December, January, February. When the time came to head for Rolling Meadows, his new son-in-law, Pancho, approached him. He just asked if he could come with us. I never said, let's go. It was his decision. He wanted to come. And maybe must be the same thing as with me. Maybe he wants a better life too, like me. Pancho and Yvonne had been getting by fine in Kiringuichano, but soon after the wedding, Yvonne got pregnant. We've got more expenses right now, with the doctor and the medicine and the birth and everything. Last month, Pancho and Yvonne's daughter, Maria Fernanda, arrived. Yvonne's goals are the same as everyone's here. Maybe they're the same as everyone's everywhere. She wants a house, somewhere she can live with Pancho, something she can leave to her children. She doesn't want to be poor. She thinks her life might turn out to be very much like her mother's. It's not that I want things to be that way, but I'm used to this, that the men go, come back, you see them, and then they leave again. She's talked to Pancho about how long he might stay in Chicago. He doesn't think he'll stay long. That's what he says. Who knows? He says he'll just be there until we get through this, then he'll come back. To Rocio, it sounds so familiar. Maybe it's the same talk she and Francisco had 19 years ago. All that time apart, and it still hasn't been enough to keep Yvonne from the same life. Rocio says, está de pensar. It's something to think about. Divided Families, The Hidden Cost of Migration was reported and produced by Katrin Einhorn and Linda Lutton and edited by Julia McAvoy. Roxana Sarate assisted with reporting in Mexico. The audio engineer was Mary Gaffney. The executive producer of Chicago Matters Beyond Borders is Sally Isley. The series is produced by Alexandra Solomon. Allison Cuddy is the project coordinator. Chicago Matters is an annual public information series made possible by the Chicago Community Trust with programming from Chicago Public Radio, WTTW 11, the Chicago Public Library, and the Chicago Reporter. Visit chicagomatters.org for more information. For more audio, photos, and a bilingual version of this report, visit our website at chicagopublicradio.org.